The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Good morning once again to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord to worship Him this morning. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for the grace You have shown us already in our lives, the grace You have shown us already this morning. God, we pray and ask that You'd be with us now. We pray for an extra measure of Your grace as we look to Your Word. May You guide us through it. May You direct us and help us to not only see and understand what it is You are speaking to us this morning, but also how to live in light of it. God, I pray that we would worship You in spirit and in truth. I pray for the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world this morning, God, that You would work mightily in and through them. God, I praise You for Your promise that You will build Your kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God, we claim that promise this morning. God, we pray that as we spend this time together, that our hearts will be knit together in love and that we will be changed by Your Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I made the joke, I think it was last week or the week before, that, at, that we would be in 1 Corinthians for the next year. And I did the math this past week. And at the pace we're going, it's actually going to be a year and a half, not a year. So, so we're going to continue our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. But I want to give you just a little bit of background. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so not a lot. But the book of 1 Corinthians is written, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written to the church in Corinth. And Corinth is a very um, pagan city. It's a very worldly city. It has all that the world has to offer. It's, it might be compared to, say, Las Vegas, the Las Vegas of our day. It really it was a place of, of excess, of a lot of sin, but also had this idea of worldly influence and pagan philosophy was mixed into this culture in Corinth. So Paul writes this letter to this church. He'd been there. He ministered with them and to them for about a year and a half. And now he's writing to them, addressing some issues in the church. And Paul, throughout this letter, repeatedly points them back to the Gospel. He directs their attention back to what Christ has done for them on the cross. So as we consider that, let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26-31. through If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26-31. through For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus." who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading 
the hearing and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to jump right in. The first point in our sermon outline is, number one, the call of God. Number one, the call of God. Paul begins by saying, Consider your calling, brethren. Having just talked about the promise of God, the pleasure of God, and the power of God, that the Gospel is the fulfillment of the promise of God, that it's the means by which He takes pleasure in drawing people, saving people to Himself, and it's the power of God by which He does save people. Paul now wants to remind the Corinthians of their condition prior to receiving Christ. You see, it's apparent that the believers in Corinth were dealing with, or, or maybe not dealing with, as the case may be, that we're dealing with the issue of pride in the church. And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, it was pride that caused them to argue with one another. Pride that caused them to say, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Peter, or Cephas. And yet others to say, well, I, I am of Christ. See, pride is incredibly dangerous. That's why James tells us that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, pride has destroyed ministries, marriages, families, and it destroys people individually. Destroys individual people. That's why G.K. Chesterton said, if I had only one sermon to preach, he said, it would be against pride. You know, I don't know about you, but I know that in my own life, it's something that I battle with. That pride is something that I repeatedly battle with. In fact, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, you are prideful. The first response is pride. My response is, I'm not prideful. How dare you say that I am prideful? I get offended because of my pride. It was pride that caused Satan to rebel against God and ultimately brought judgment on himself. In Isaiah 14, we read this. Isaiah 14, 12-15. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount, on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. Can you imagine? I will, I will, I will, I will, I will make myself like the most high. But isn't that what pride really says? Verse 15, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. You see, God hates pride, and loves humility. Matthew 23.12 says, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Proverbs 29.23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. So we know that God hates pride, for the Bible speaks against it again and again and again. The question is why? Why is God such an enemy of pride? In reality, it's not as though God says, you know, you know what? I've decided I'm not going to like pride. You know, I've just decided that I'm going to hate pride. I'm actually going to declare war against it. Instead, the reality is that pride declares war on God. 
Psalm 10, 4 says this, The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, in his pride, the wicked, in his pride, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. That the wicked, in his pride, does not seek God, and in fact says, there is no God. In other words, because of pride, the wicked, they don't seek him. They just decide that they are God. You see, it's pride that causes me to say, I'm not concerned with what God wants. I want what I want, and I'm willing to sin in order to get it. Right? It's pride that causes me to say that. It's pride that causes one to seek his own glory instead of bringing God glory. But in reality, being a Christian and being humble go hand in hand. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That there's a certain amount of humility that needs to recognize one's need for a Savior. That instead of seeing ourselves as good and right and perfect, we need to humble ourselves and see ourselves as sinners. Sinners deserving judgment. Ultimately deserving eternity in hell. I have a friend who uh, called me the other day and he left a voicemail and he said, Hey brother, I hope you're doing good. Or I hope you're good. And then he said, actually, I know you're not good. I know you're a dirty, rotten sinner deserving of hell. But I hope you're well. Right? Because he understands the reality. The reality that in pride, we sometimes think we are good when we're not good. I was reading this week a Puritan prayer. It says this. I just want to read. It's from the Valley of Vision. Great collection of Puritan prayers. It says this. or A part of it says this. How can I flaunt myself proudly? Lowest abasement is my due place, for I am less than nothing before Thee. Help me to see myself in Thy sight. Then pride must wither, decay, die, perish. Humble my heart before Thee and replenish it with Thy choicest gifts. As water rests not on barren hill summits, but flows down to fertilize lowest vales. So make me the lowest of the lowly, that my spiritual riches may exceedingly abound. When I am tempted to think highly of myself, grant me to see the, the wily power of my spiritual enemy. Help me to stand with wary eye on the watchtower of faith and cling with determined grasp to my humble Lord. If I fall, let me hide myself in my Redeemer's righteousness. And when I escape, may I ascribe all deliverance to Thy grace. Keep me humble, meek, and lowly. You see, in humility we need to see our need for a Savior. So in this section, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that there's no room for pride. And he does so by reminding them of the call of God in their lives. He says, consider or think about who you were when you were called. He reminds them that it's not because of their greatness that they are now in Christ, but instead because of His greatness. And he does so with striking contrast. Listen to this. He says, he says not many of you were wise... But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So not many of you were wise, but you know what? God has chosen the things that are foolish so that He can shame those which are wise in the world's understanding. He says, not many of you were mighty, but God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And He says, not many of you were noble, but the base things of the world and the despised things, those are the things that God has chosen. 
Just not many of you, not many of you, not many of you, but God. He's chosen the things that are not, the unimportant, the insignificant, so that he may nullify the things that are. In other words, he shows them the foolishness of their so-called wisdom. The world tells us to pursue wealth, prestige, and power. But at the end of one's life, these things do not matter. And they can't be used to obtain peace with God. I have a shirt that I wear that uh, has a quote from Count Zinzendorf. And it says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And ultimately, I need to remind myself that that is what my life will most likely look like. That ultimately, it's about preaching the gospel, dying, and then being forgotten. It's not about building a name or keeping a name for myself. You see, if you take away nothing else from this message, I want you to see that salvation is a work of God. The text doesn't say, those who are foolish, weak, and despised, those are the ones that are most likely to choose God. That's not what the text says. The text says, God chose the foolish, the weak, the despised, the unimportant. That's who He chose in Corinth. So let's take a look at that list. Right, Foolish, weak, despised. The word foolish comes from the Greek word moros. It's where we get the English word moron, just like we talked about last week. It refers to being without understanding. God chose those who are without understanding. Weak refers to being physically weak or without strength. In the Scripture, it's often translated sick. Jesus healed those who are weak in Greek or base and despised. The word base carries the idea of obscure or insignificant, unimportant. And despised carries the idea of being rejected because of a lack of value. It's worthless. Disposable. So that's who God chose for His church in Corinth. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there weren't any in Corinth who were wise or mighty or noble. Because there certainly may have been some in Corinth. For the text says, not many of you were this way. However, the point is that most of them didn't have that kind of background. And even if they did have some strength or power or position, they certainly were not in a place to boast before God. So what Paul was essentially saying is this. He's saying, look at yourselves. Look at yourselves. God chose a bunch of nobodies, if I may be so liberal with the text. It's really what God is saying. Look at you. Like, you're foolish and weak and base and despised. You're nobody of importance. God chose a bunch of nobodies. You know, I often think, man, can you imagine how amazing it would be if the President of the United States became a born-again Christian? Now, let me explain. I, I, I understand the Christian calls the, the, the Christian. The president calls himself a Christian. I understand that. Um, I purposefully use the term "born again" because I want to speak to a specific type of Christian, if there is such a type of Christian, that there is no Christian who is not born again. That being a Christian means, be born, means being born again. That Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But many call themselves, refer to themselves as Christians, as we talked about today in Sunday school. But that doesn't make one a follower of Jesus. What I'm saying is if the President of our United States, I stand back and I think, what would happen? 
What would happen if he went to church today and he chose, he was called to follow Jesus today? And that he committed his life to serving Christ. I often think, can you imagine how much of an impact that would have on the world? And yet, that's not at all what we see in the ministry of Jesus. That's how I would do things. Sometimes I think, God, hello, just call the president, get him. He can stand on national TV and be like, you're not going to believe it, but here's what happened in church today. I realized I'm a wretched sinner. I realized I'm deserving of hell and that there's eternal punishment for my sin. I chose to receive Jesus Christ as not only my Savior, but also my Lord, and I am going to live for his glory today. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't go to Rome to find some government officials but instead he went to the shore to find some fishermen. In common vernacular, he didn't go to Washington, D.C. or even Augusta. He went to the fishermen's co-op, right? And he found a, he found a bunch of lobstermen, along with the ancient equivalent of a political instigator and an IRS agent. I mean, this is who he, this is who he picked. He chose 12 ordinary men to be his apostles. And the majority of his disciples throughout history have been much like them. Not many wise, not many mighty or noble, just ordinary people. Yeah, there's some. Yeah, there's certainly some in history who have been wise and mighty and noble in the world standard. But for the most part, his disciples have been just like the people in Corinth. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. So why? Why? Well, verse 29 makes it clear. So that no man may boast before God. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no man may boast. God is not a respecter of persons. And the beginning of verse 30 reminds us of that. He says, By His doing, You are in Christ Jesus by His doing. Not by human desire or effort, but according to the mercy of God. Just looking at this text, I underlined a few key words in this text when I was reading through it this week. Verse 21, God was well pleased to save those who believe. Verse 24, to those who are the called. Verse 26, consider your calling. Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things. And God has chosen the weak things. Verse 28, God has chosen the things that are not. It's not according to human effort. Not according to our own ability to please God. But instead, by God's grace that He calls. So having seen, number one, the call of God, that God often calls the foolish, the weak, the despised, and and the unimportant to Himself, Let's consider the second point in our sermon outline. The second point is the work of God. So the first point is the call of God. The second point is the work of God. Look at uh, verses 30 through 31 of 1 Corinthians 1 with me. 30 and 31 says this But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Though God often calls the foolish, the weak, the despised, and and the unimportant to Himself, praise God that He doesn't let them remain in that condition. 
Paul tells the Corinthians that Christ became to them wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Notice the contrast of who they were prior to knowing Christ and the work of God in their lives now that they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. He says, you were foolish, but Christ became wisdom to you. You were weak, but Christ became righteousness to you. You were despised, but Christ became sanctification to you. You were unimportant, but Christ became your redemption. You know, I don't know if there's a text that's any more Christ-centered, that's any more Gospel-centered than this. Look at who you were, and look at what Christ is doing now in you. Look at these words individually. Wisdom. Christ became their wisdom. The word wisdom conveys not only the capacity to understand, but also the changing of one's behavior as a result. So I said a few weeks ago, knowledge is having the information to know what to do when the stoplight turns red, right? Wisdom is applying my foot to the brake. So knowledge says, the light turned red. Wisdom says, I better put my foot on the brake instead of hitting the gas and trying to get through the red light. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So Paul is reminding the believers in Corinth that their worldly wisdom was replaced with true wisdom. Wisdom from God. As believers, they had been given wisdom as evidenced by the fact that they had been called to Christ and Christ had, been, uh, had become their Savior and their Lord. But now, Paul also wants them to grow in wisdom. That's why he says to the church in Ephesus, he wrote in Ephesians 1, verses 15-17, through 17, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that God, that the God and Lord, and of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So he says, I know I heard that you believed in Jesus, that you have this faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of that, I'm praying that you grow, that you may grow in the spirit of wisdom and revelation in Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 1.9, he says it maybe even more plainly. Since the day we heard of it, your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He says, you've been given wisdom to receive Christ. Now I'm praying that you grow in wisdom. Sometimes the Christian faith is depicted as saying a prayer or walking an aisle, or some other way in which someone demonstrates their decision for Christ. And if you've been in this church for more than 20 minutes, then you know that sometimes I pick on that, that, thought, that thought or that philosophy. That somehow saying a prayer, raising your hand, walking an aisle, that those things are the mark of becoming a Christian. Because biblical Christianity is not one decision. Instead, it is a lifetime of decisions. Yes, it begins with a decision to trust in Christ as your Savior, to follow Christ as your Lord, but it's a continued trusting and following in Jesus. It's a lifelong journey of growing in wisdom as we look to God's Word and seek to honor Christ with our lives. I had no idea at 19 years old what God would call me to do. 
I had no idea what He would call me to sacrifice in my life. What I, what I thought was a sacrifice, which is really just a blessing to give up the things that I've given up for Him. But I had no idea what it truly meant to follow Christ. And many times in my life, I've been walking along and Christ has said, this area of your life does not bring me glory. And I say, you want that too, Lord? Like, I get it. Look, at, I'm following you. I mean, compare me to Bill, right? Look at me. I'm doing pretty good. And he says, no, I want that too. That he continues to call us to obedience. That he wants everything. There's a cartoon that's circulating on Facebook, and it's a, um, it's a picture of a little cartoon character who's holding out his heart, and he says, this is all I have. And Jesus says, that's okay, because that's all I'm asking for. And in some sense, that's cute. And in some sense, it's true. But we need to realize, when we give Jesus our heart, what we are giving Him. We can't say, oh, I give you my heart, but you know, you're not getting my checkbook. Or I'll give you my heart, but you're not going to get what I watch on TV at night. Or I'll give you my heart, right? But I'm not going to let you have this part of my life. That my life is pictured as I build this wall. And I say, oh, I've given you my whole life, Lord. And he says, what's behind the wall? And I go, oh, there's nothing back there. Don't pay no attention to the wall, right? And he says, well, what's behind the wall? So I move the wall back. And he says, well, I'm, you know, I'm glad you gave me this, but what's behind the wall? And I keep moving it back. And when I realize that I need to give everything to Jesus, I don't even realize what everything is at this point. That we're called to a life of obedience. It's a lifelong journey of growing in wisdom and applying what we know. So Christ became their wisdom. And next we see that Christ became their righteousness. So righteousness can be defined as the act of doing what God requires or doing what is right. It's the idea that we have been made right with God through Christ and now we participate in His righteousness. That He made us right with Him positionally and now He makes us right with Him in actuality as well. That we live in rightness with God. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that there are none righteous. Not even one. But he goes on to say in verses 21-22 through of chapter 3, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. That those who through faith in Christ believe are made righteous. Then he says in Romans 4-5, to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteous. As righteousness. That His righteousness is credited to us. Or 2 Corinthians 5-21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, even though we haven't done right, we have sinned against God, Jesus has done right. And He is righteous. And He's taken our place so that His righteousness is imputed to us. It is reckoned to our account. He made a deposit, so to speak, in my spiritually bankrupt account. So Christ became their wisdom and their righteousness. And next we see that He becomes their sanctification. The word sanctification, the idea here is to be set apart or to be made holy. 
John MacArthur explains this well. I love this. He says, the righteousness that is counted to us judicially, or positionally, if you will, the righteousness that is counted to us judicially also becomes ours in actuality, in holiness, in sanctification. In other words, not only is Christ's righteousness credited to our account, but He grows us in holiness as we become more like Him day by day by day. Romans 6.19 says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now, that one time you presented your bodies as slaves to lawlessness, but now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, resulting in being set apart and made holy. We talked about this in Sunday school. How do we set ourselves apart? What does that look like? And the answer was, we examine everything. Everything we do needs to be run through the lens of Scripture. Does it honor God? In what ways is this bringing glory to God? The, the commands of Scripture are not hard to understand. It's hard to live out sometimes. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I actually believe that the whatever means whatever. That we are called to do everything for the glory of God. So Christians are called to grow in that holiness Galatians 5 tells us, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And then Romans 8, we're called to put to death the deeds of the body, right? Put to death the deeds of the body so that we can live. We are called to be holy. So Christ became their wisdom, their righteousness, their sanctification, or their holiness. And next we see that Christ became their redemption. Redemption means to buy back. So we have been bought with a price. It's interesting. Anytime you see somebody who moves here from away and they, they have to wonder what the redemption centers are all about. I actually had a, a, somebody ask me, they said, what are all those? Are they like religious places? Right? All those redemption centers around? I said, no, no, no. That's where we take uh, bottles and cans and we take them back. They buy them back. See, for us, we know that we take these things and they buy them back from us. We've already bought them once. Redemption means just that, to buy back. We've been bought with a price and Christ has purchased us from the power of sin and death. He bought us. 1 Peter 1, verses 18-19 through says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. God didn't buy us with money. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, 13-14, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. We have the One who bought us back from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. So Paul reminds the believers in Corinth that Christ is their wisdom, that He's their righteousness, He's their sanctification, and their redemption. So if we think about this, the call of God and the work of God, let's try to pull this all together and bring the ship in the shore, so to speak. What we see in this text is that the call of God results in the work of God. That the call of God results 
in his work. Paul says, says this in this text. He says, Not many of you were wise, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world and made you wise. Not many of you were wise, but God chose you and He made you wise. Not many of you were mighty, but God chose the weak things of the world and He made you right with God. Not many of you were noble, but God has chosen the base and despised things of the world and He set you apart in holiness. And not many of you were seen as valuable or important, but God bought you with a price, namely the blood of His own Son. Can you imagine reading this as the church in Corinth? Not many of you were wise, but God made you wise. Not many of you were mighty, but you were made right with God. Not many of you were noble, but God has set you apart from the world in holiness. And not many of you were seen as valuable, but you were bought with the blood of God's Son. And that's what He's saying to us today. In the very same way, He's saying those same things to us. And I believe that if Paul could say anything to us today to encourage us as a church, this is what he would say. It's not about you being wise or mighty or noble or important. It's about the work of God in your lives. So what should the response be? Paul says, Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That there's no place for bragging. No place for looking down upon the world because we somehow were smart enough to be here this morning or to choose Christ. But instead, salvation is a work of God. That God called us and that He's working in our lives. And therefore, if there's any boasting, it's only in what Christ has done for us by His grace. So the question is, so how do we apply all of this, both individually and corporately, specifically here at Harmony Bible Church? How do we take this message of the call of God and His work and apply it to our lives? Number one, I encourage you to hear the call of God in your lives. You know, I don't know who here is a follower of Jesus Christ and who's not, other than myself. I can speak to my own faith, but I don't know for sure of anyone else's faith in this room. And I would encourage you, as Paul encouraged the Corinthians, he said in uh, 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no man deceive you. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. To lay aside worldly wisdom. To put aside pride and instead run to the Savior. To follow Jesus. To hear His call on your life. And say, there's nothing in me There's nothing in me that can please God. But I know the One who does please God. And I know that He died on the cross for me. If you're not a believer, I encourage you to speak to Bill or I. and encourage you to talk with us further about what that looks like. What it looks like to make that one decision and then continue to make a series of decisions of hearing the call of God in your life. But then also... For most of us, most of us would probably say we're here this morning because we, ha- we have heard God's call. That in humility, we recognize there is nothing in ourselves that pleases God. That it's not of works that we can come before God, but only by grace and what Christ has done for us. So in light of that, 
My encouragement is rejoice in the work of God in your lives. Rejoice in His work. Right? That we are called to grow in wisdom. That we are supposed to look to His Word and become doers of it. And as I do that, I recognize that I continue to fall down day after day after day. And I get up and I look to His Word again. And I know that He is still working on me as we sing in Sunday school. Right? That He continues to work in our lives to make us more like Him. It's His work, not my work. So rejoice in His work. Grow in wisdom. Rejoice in His work. Draw strength, not from our righteousness, but His. We've got to seek His grace. Recognize the power of the Gospel and live in grace, knowing that when we fall down, it's not by my righteousness that, that I was saved to begin with. It's only by His righteousness. But then, in light of that, we need to grow in holiness. So we don't say, well, it's by His righteousness. I'm a sinner. Therefore, in light of that, He died for me. His righteousness is applied to my account. I can do whatever I want. Instead, we say, no, I must daily set myself apart from sin and set myself apart to God. I must examine every area of my life. I must continue to tear down those walls that I have constructed. I must confess my sin and have others hold me accountable if I am to grow in holiness. Allow Him to do His work in me. And that's what I encourage you to do. And then lastly... I'd encourage you to remember your redemption, right? That though you were nobody, you were worthless. Not many mighty, not many noble. That in light of that, Christ bought you. That you were bought with His blood. And that sin, therefore, no longer has mastery over us. That we no longer need to submit to the to the slave master of sin, but instead we are now slaves with Christ. Picture that. That you are a slave either way. That you're not your own. That instead, you are a slave to sin and you are bought by another slave master. And this time, the slave master is Christ. And He says, I'm seeking your welfare. I'm seeking for you to grow in Me He bought you. He redeemed you with His blood. So in light of that, let's leave here rejoicing in the work of God. Let's grow in wisdom. Let's draw strength from His righteousness. Let's grow in holiness. And let's remember our redemption. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your grace. I pray that as we live our lives, that we we would recognize not only Your call upon our lives, but also the work that You are doing in us. God, I pray that we would be obedient to You as we recognize that You are indeed working to grow us in wisdom, that You have indeed made us righteous, and God, that You also are growing us in holiness. God, I praise You that as we go through this life that You continue to help us tear down those walls, that You help us set ourselves apart from sin, that we no longer are slaves of sin, but that we also remember our redemption, that You have been gracious to buy us with the blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that we would submit to Him daily as we live out the call of the Gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.